you speak to the value of consecrated life in the church. And so when you go to go to the internet and go to YouTube and type in www.youtube and here it comes I think my computer goes slow because I'm trying to be on the Wi-Fi and it's using my Wi-Fi to connect to the projector. So do a YouTube search for Sean Kilcally. Search. Come on, computer. Now you see that I watch YouTube videos about Marvel movies. Okay, so, and when you look up Sean Kilcally, boom, first thing is Theology of the Body, Father Sean Kilcally, Catholic Diocese of Lincoln. Okay, so if you open this up, then you're going to get the whole list of the 12 classes that I taught in the evening classes on Wednesdays for the last three months. And basically what we've covered here is about half of the content that I taught in that 12-week class um, because I've tried to tailor more to kind of understanding the lives of our young people, understanding the families we come from, our own conversion process, and all of that. So when you get down to like session 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, um, there's a whole class on virginity for the sake of the kingdom. Okay, so where we reflect on the vocations that we have and how everyone is called to a vocation to love, and that vocation to love is expressed either in marriage or in consecrated virginity. Okay, so the value of consecrated life in the church is that it points to the vertical dimension of eschatological life, which is why religious sisters are referred to as brides of Christ because by their vocation they represent a sign of the church who is the bride of Christ in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, and when we use that term bride of Christ, it always refers to the eschatological sign. Okay, the church is the bride of Christ. When is the church triumphant? Okay, the term Bride of Christ is an eschatological term. So, which means that if I stand in the place of Christ, I can also say I stand in the place of Christ as bridegroom. But what bride is my bride? The church. church, But the eschatological church, not the people in the pews. Because if I think my bride is the people in the pews that implies that we are in a mutually supporting reciprocal relationship which I depend on for my identity. Okay, so if I think that I'm the bridegroom of the people in the pews, I'm going to be constantly worried about being affirmed by the people in the pews and I'll stop being a father. So if the church is my bride, it's the eschatological church. It's the church in the kingdom of heaven, personified by the person of Mary. So John Paul II says, every priest should consecrate his life to Mary. And in that relationship, that bridegroom-bride dynamic is lived out. 
St. Paul, when he says, husbands, love your wives, as Christ loves the church, he's talking about the eschatological church because he says he, that Christ gave his life for her in order to present her to himself holy, unblemished, and without spot. So if Christ is the bridegroom of the church who is the bride and the church is holy, unblemished, and without spot, that means it's the eschatological church. It doesn't mean that it's the people in the pews unless you're already holy, unblemished, and without spot. And so we'd be better off thinking of ourselves as children who are becoming spouses as we are perfected in holiness. Most of us are sort of like a rebellious teenager of God where we know what God wants from our lives. We don't quite want to do it. And we're trying to come to that place of trust and conversion and abandonment. And as we come to that place of trust and conversion and abandonment, and we grow in holiness, then we become part of the church triumphant, which is definitively the bride. Okay, right now we consider the church as the church militant, the church suffering and the church triumphant, right? We are part of the church militant, which means that we are like on the way to our Lord. Church suffering is the church in purgatory. The church triumphant is in heaven. The end of time when all things are made new in Christ, the whole church will be triumphant. Okay, so when we use those terms, it's important to recognize that the eschatological significance, right? So when we did eschatological man, that's why we did eschatological man. Um, because otherwise it can become, we can get confused in it. Now, admittedly, like for me, as a young seminarian, what did I want? I wanted to be in union with Christ, but I didn't really understand what it meant to be a son, and so I really liked bridegroom-bride analogies. Now, as I got older, I started to see some of my friends who liked bridegroom-bride analogies leave the church for a bride. (laughs) because they became dependent on the affirmation of a person and they started out as a father and became a bridegroom. Fell in love with a woman that they were helping or counseling or something like that and then left the church to get married. And I've seen that in a lot of young priests who are very faithful and fervent and great preachers and amazing. And then all of a sudden people go, what happened? But there was something like about their identity that wasn't, fundamentally the identity of a son it was the identity of a bridegroom so ips uses like the five identities of the priest you know beloved son chaste spouse something 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 and i think those are good ways of thinking about relationality but even my spiritual director who's at ipf um he is constantly just talking about my identity as son that's where my spiritual life is, you know, which is important because it's fundamental. Right? It's not choose your own relationality. It's really the fundamental anthropological pattern that Pope Benedict talks about where you're a son who becomes a spouse who becomes a parent. Okay, so, so to get those lessons on virginity for the sake of the kingdom, marriage is a sacrament and vocation, and the church is teaching about marriage and fertility, 
you can go to YouTube and watch the videos from those classes. Um, and they're all there. And as you've sat in class with me all this time, you probably won't mind that the video is not very well done. It's just, you know, the camera was over there, pointed at me, and I'm up here talking on the whiteboard. I'll send you all the slides and things like that. Um, okay, so that's where that question probably can be best answered. Okay, Father, I have two questions. Going back to the beginning, what is the difference between the words image and likeness when it says we are created in God's image and likeness? So sometimes people you make these distinctions. I don't get so much caught up in them. Um, so I'm not really prepared to answer this question, to be honest. Right. Does anybody else want to answer how you've usually answered it? Go ahead. I know, but I read it in a book called Love. Yep. Okay. Yeah, and I, I almost think that the distinction they make is image refers to the fact that we have intellect and will, and likeness refers to our call to love and loving communion. Okay. I think that's the way that they, that Granados and Anderson play that out right it's the way they unpack this idea that in john paul ii he adds this sort of ability to love or the call to love to the traditional answer of reason and free will make us the image of god yeah is that a question or a pen okay i understand that the angels are different species etc yet with god being a communion of persons and his creating in love and for union Humans, it seems that the angels would also be created for some kind of communion of love. Are there any comments on this? So when I talked about the angels all being their own species, um, in order to be a communion of persons, right, it means that you have a mutually giving and receiving relation. So like the angels would all be in a relation of filiation to God, right? that in receiving and trusting relation with regard to God, analogous to us. With regard to us, they would always, always be in this relation of giving more than receiving. Right? They would give, we would receive or entrust because they're a higher species than us. So when we talk about gender and angels, it's really interesting and sacred art often reflects this, that when you see angels ministering to Jesus, they look more feminine because they're in the mode of receiving. When you see angels, like guardian angels, they're like these big, tough, masculine angels because they're more in the mode of action than receptivity. So if we use masculinity and femininity in terms of activity and passivity or activity and receptivity, then with an angel, they don't have a sex, but they have a relational identity so their relational identity would be feminine with respect to God and masculine with respect to us. The same angel. Right? But they don't have sex because they don't have a body. Right? Going back to sex refers to body type. Identity refers to your relational identity. And so for them to be in communion with each other, it would always be a position where one is above the other. So there wouldn't really be like that mutual gift and receiving because one of them is always smarter than the other one. So they're always in a hierarchy, and there's no horizontal communion among angels. 
So with us, with God, there's such a thing as horizontal communion. With angels, no. Because they all have their own, they're all their own species. Sorry about that. Okay. <clears throat> John of the Cross talks about experiencing people who are used to experiencing a high level of sensual experience expect the same from their spiritual experience. Today, a lot of people fit into that category. What are some steps to help teens expect and accept that sensual experience is something different? So, like, in the spiritual life, like, so we do our, okay, so we have our sensual experiences, and I'm not really sure, does somebody want to flesh out this question? Nobody wants to flesh out the question. Thanks. <laughs> okay. So if the question is getting at, like, your essential experiences are all really exciting and super emotional and things like that, and we want you to know that your experience with God is just going to be flat, no emotions, nothing, I don't think that's true. Now, there is, like, the fact that people who are, have a high level of sensual experience, they also tend to be like thrill seekers and they're constantly looking for something and they're constantly looking for something new and exciting and things like that. And the spiritual life's not always like that. Right? But in the spiritual life, the Lord does make an impression on our affect and people can have like emotions in their prayer life. You know, part of our prayer life is... Like, what was it like when Jesus walks up to you? So when I was in Rome, I was praying over the call of the first disciples for a while towards the end. And Jesus would just, like, walk up to me on the Sea of Galilee in my mind. I'm walking along, like, kicking rocks and stuff like that. And Jesus walks up to me, and I look into his eyes, and then I just freeze. And that was it. Like, that was all I got was I just froze. Right? Now, does that mean my prayer was bad? No, it just reveals where my relationship with Christ was, which was Jesus is coming towards me and he's going to call me to do something and I'm freaking out about it and I just freeze. That's where I am right now. I'm just frozen. And so the fact that I freeze in my prayer is essential. It's, it's an experience. It's an emotional experience within my prayer where I don't really want to interact with him. One of my directees is praying over the same passage and she's like, so Jesus comes up and I'm holding on to my nets and I just don't, I, I'm just not going to let go of my net. And that's where she stayed for months is like, I can't let go of my net. And so then it's really interesting. Like, what does your net symbolize in your life? Like, why won't you just like let go of the net so that you can grab onto our Lord, but she's just like stuck holding her net. She might stay there for a while. And that's an experience in prayer. And so we can have these experiences in our prayer. And when you read John of the Cross, like his prayer is actually quite sensual and experiential when he talks about being in love with our Lord. I think, I can't remember if it's him or if it's like St. Alphonsus Liguri, and he talks about like this really kind of affective experience of our Lord in prayer. And so our prayer can be something in which we experience our Lord. And I actually think teaching young people to pray in that way can help them to enter into that kind of prayer. Like they might actually like the experience of meditation and prayer 
more than the thrill-seeking experiences that they have. Um, but it's not going to always be the same. But we do have, like, our emotions do move us in prayer. And sometimes the emotion we feel in prayer is nothing, is dryness. And people go through periods of dryness, and it can be for different reasons. Sometimes we go through dryness because we're not willing to let our Lord into a part of our life, and we're kind of shutting him out. It's just like when you're in a relationship with a person, and you do not they're trying to love you, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to shut you out. And it's kind of flat. Mother Teresa went through this whole period in her life, and Come Be My Light, it talks about how she never really felt God's presence in her life. Now, this came after she describes Jesus saying to her very specifically, I want you to leave the sisters you're in and go start this other order in India. So she had had an experience, a very profound experience of Christ in her prayer. And then she went into this period of dryness. And in that period of dryness, she radiated God's joy. So everybody else could see it, but she couldn't see it. And that happens with when we get advanced in the spiritual life. Sometimes we're like, I'm going through the dark night of the soul. Leave me alone. <laughs> okay? Jesus is putting me through this dryness. And I'm going through the dark night. It's transforming me into God's love. Get the heck out of my face. <laughs> right? So if that's happening, it's probably not the dark night of the soul. Because the fruits of the Holy Spirit will still be there whether or not you experience that emotionally in your prayer. But we can have that experience of God's love. Like that prayer that I prayed with our Lord when I was in Rome, like I finished it when I went to the Holy Land. I was actually in the Sea of Galilee walking around and I finally had that conversation with Jesus and I had this realization it was the conversation between Jesus and Peter. Like where... Peter's experience is sort of like he's been called to be the rock on which his church is built, and then he keeps like falling backwards, and he makes this affirmation, he falls backwards, makes this affirmation, he falls backwards. And in my prayer, I got this sense of just feeling unworthy of the call. And so in my unworthiness, in the face of the call, I just want to go back to my old life, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. And so he goes fishing. And then Jesus appears, and Peter runs to him, and they have the dialogue, do you love me more than these? Feed my sheep. Like, do you love me more than these fears, anxieties, worries that you're not worthy? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Like, feed my sheep anyways. I knew that you had all that junk in your life. And I still called you to be the head of the church. So feed my sheep anyways. And so my own reservation in the face of our Lord coming, my own, I experienced as my own resistance to what is God going to ask of me if he's given me certain gifts in my life. And we can be afraid of surrendering our life to our Lord sometimes because we're afraid of what he's going to ask us to do. And if we experience that, it's not uncommon and it's not foreign to the experience of our Lord's disciples in Scripture. And our Lord called him to be the head of the church anyways. So... That's how I experienced that completion of my prayer when I was in the Holy Land, which I did exactly precisely right before I came back to the diocese. And then Jesus asked me to be the anti-porn priest. So (laughs) that's the way that rolled. Let me get through the rest of these real quick. 
In talking about gender identity, you referred to strong, weak masculinity. It seems to me that an over-focus on specific ways on being masculine or too much labeling characteristics is effeminated. Okay, as effeminate can be a cause of young men questioning their gender identity. I'd appreciate your comments, which could help us as teachers, particularly as women, wanting young men to accept their maleness and that of their peers. Okay. So, again, like I would take the approach that masculinity is received, not achieved. So, we receive our masculinity from someone that we admire and that those characteristics are what we receive from our Lord. And so if we want to know what it means to be a man, we look to our Lord. And that the first identity we have to build is our identity as sons. Because if we're not a son, we can't be a father. Fatherhood is the seed of masculinity. And so that's where I would go with that. Now, there are certain things like courage is a virtue, and there are certain things like self-control is a virtue, and these are all like good masculine virtues. Integrity is a virtue that's a good masculine virtue to build up. Now, these don't mean that they're not also feminine virtues. Okay, but to take responsibility is, that's fatherhood. Fatherhood means I take responsibility for this child. You know, and so how do we teach our young people to take responsibility for their actions? You know, you might get in trouble, you might not get in trouble. Just tell me that you did it and admit that you did it. We can move on. It's, it's, it takes a, it's a more efficient. We don't have to go back and forth about whether or not you have excuses. Um... And so, like, those kind of virtues, or talking about those kind of virtues, can be a way of doing that. There's, like, John Eldridge book, Wild at Heart, but it's, it's not written from a Catholic perspective. And a lot of writing about masculine identity in the church, I, I kind of put it in the, in the category of machismo spirituality, which is, I'm just going to, like determine these are the things that it means to be a man, so I'm just going to do those things and then I'll be manly. But that's not how we develop that because at the core, competence is one of those traits as well. Like, I know who I am and I know who I am in Christ. You know, I know who I am with in regard to women. And so, particularly as women wanting young men to accept their maleness and that of their peers, like, to talk about what you admire in our Lord, like, what you receive from our Lord, your own relationship with our Lord, who is Jesus, and that we come to know ourselves through Him. So sometimes we have these chastity speakers, and they put, like, these men up, like Batman and Braveheart and all this stuff. But really, we only need to look at our Lord. I think it was it was like Generation Life when they came and they had like Batman and Braveheart and then they're like, oh yeah, and this guy, Jesus. And then we go on. <laughs> Jesus doesn't go on the same level as Batman. All right. <laughs> Do you think it's true that young women aren't usually as limited in what is feminine? Today, I'm not so sure. 
Um, can you want to explain that one? Or give me more? Yeah, I think generally, like women's studies movements and things like that have really like advanced everything, so that women become the ideal in our society. Like most, uh, even like most young kid movies, right? Like when we think about cartoon movies that kids grew up watching, how many of them have a male protagonist? Like hardly any anymore. And when they do have a male protagonist, it's not a person, it's a car. So there aren't really, like, children's movies, like, it's always like the strong female lead is kind of becoming the standard because it's more interesting or more edgy or whatever, but we don't really have, like, the strong male lead or the boy who learns to become a man. We don't have a lot of that in the media, and so as young boys are growing up who are the role models and what are they looking to to receive their identity you know when I was growing up I looked to Sylvester Stallone to receive my identity like I wanted to be Rocky that's what I wanted to be and I would always think about that I would always like do the harder thing and I would think about Rocky like going to Russia and you know training naturally while Ivan Drago was training with steroids um but that was like that was me searching for my identity in a lot of ways. Um, but today there's just not as much emphasis on that. There needs to be more and stronger emphasis on that. And that's what a lot of people in men's ministries are trying to do is trying to help fathers to be fathers who hand on their um, identity to their sons. You know. But to talk about how, I mean, I think you can even talk about Jesus' strength and how you know that you can entrust yourself to his strength and that as young men, like, they need to receive that strength from our Lord so that a woman someday will be able to entrust herself to him. You know, like, what are they looking for? And talk about, like, what do you look for in a strong person? Um, Okay, if marriage isn't marriage until it's consummated, what's the deal with Mary and Joseph? Okay, so marriage is marriage. I'm glad people ask these questions because it's not exactly what I said. So marriage is marriage when the vows are exchanged. It's a marriage. It's permanent and unbreakable after consummation. So Mary and Joseph had a marriage. And they also experienced motherhood and fatherhood. They experienced motherhood and fatherhood. Joseph was a real father to Jesus. And if you've never read Guardian of the Redeemer, I'd read Guardian of the Redeemer. And it talks about how Joseph became Jesus' father. And how do we know that? Because he named him. Because it's Joseph. The angel tells Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. And so the father gives his son his identity. Right? He names him. So Joseph was a real father to our Lord. 
and John Paul II talks a lot about that in Guardian of the Redeemer. And Pope Francis, when he became Pope, he became Pope on the Feast of St. Joseph, and he quotes from Guardian of the Redeemer a lot. And then what did Pope Francis do? He consecrated the Vatican to St. Joseph, and then he put St. Joseph's name in the Eucharistic prayer, right? in all the Eucharistic prayers, not just Eucharistic prayer one. Pope Francis has had this like, intentional movement of giving the church under the protection of St. Joseph. Why? Because the church needs strong fathers. You know, all of this in the context of calling for the synod on the family. You know, but the media is more interested in, you know, Pope Francis wrote on the environment, then he talks about St. Joseph. Um, so it was a real marriage. And in the section on marriage as a sacrament and the other YouTube videos, um, I talk about that more explicitly too. How, where will we be able to access the audio recordings from this week? I will work on them this weekend, and I will have Sister Mary Catherine send you them uh, next week. Okay, so make sure that your email is with Sister Mary Catherine before you go, and I will get them out. Okay, hopefully my phone is working, and it's actually going to, I'll be able to get the audio from today. Um, so I'll send them all out. I, I don't know what format I'll send them in. I might upload them to my cloud account on my SoundCloud account and, but not make them public. But if I send you the link, you can get to them. Okay. So you'll only be able to get them through the link. I probably won't make them public. Um, cause I don't know if I really want to put all my content out on the internet for free. And, uh, and I did tell a lot of personal stories that sometimes I'm worried my family members find it and they get mad at me. So, and I just said that on the thing. <laughs> I'm just going to delete that. Okay, so what's the difference, the distinction between spiritualization and divinization? Because they seem to me the same um, when you explained it. So, I'd have to go back through and look it all up. Um, so, like, the idea of divinization means that we are, like, we receive God's life in us. Okay, the idea of spiritualization, I think, is more that the life in the spirit takes priority over the life in the flesh. You know, we are born a corporal body, we become a spiritual body. Right? Divinization has to do with the divine life in us. And that's the best I'm going to do. Sometimes these terms are really interchangeable and, you know, they take place. It's like image and likeness, really very similar. And so we make, we can extrapolate from them a distinction that we want to make theologically. But they're... They can be similar terms. Okay, spiritualization, divinization can be similar terms. Um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say. That's all I got. Any other questions? Sister? There was that question, I didn't write it, but the question that was put off from a couple of days ago about, I think it was a single life. Yeah, so we didn't get to that too. It was on the single life? I think so. Yeah, Okay.
So, now I'll just do this. Is the single life a vocation? Dun, dun, dun. It's like the great debate among high school teachers of vocations class. So when I was in, at West Point, I was involved with tech. And in tech, we had these vocation talks. And the vocations panel was a priest, a married couple, uh, and then a single person. So there's somebody who gave the priesthood, religious life, married life, and then single, single life talk. Now, the thing was, if you did the single life talk three times, then you would get engaged, right? That was the thing, right? So it was like this joke, right? Third time you do the single life talk, you get engaged. And there was a few people that did that. They gave three single life talks, and they got engaged. So is single life a vocation? Well, in that sense, it kind of proved that it wasn't a vocation because they made the transition to married life. So when we talk about vocation, we all have a universal vocation to love, right? It's the universal call to holiness, is a universal vocation to love. John Paul II in Redemptor Hominis, man cannot live without love. He's a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless. If love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. So our vocation to love can be lived out in one of two ways. One is marriage. One is virginity for the kingdom. Okay, virginity for the kingdom. It has to be virginity for the kingdom, not virginity for the sake of not having to deal with people. Okay, virginity for the kingdom. So then virginity for the kingdom can be lived out in consecrated religious life, consecrated life, not community liberation. Okay, consecrated life, priesthood. I'm going to change this to religious life. And then it can be lived out and is lived out by some people in consecrated virginity. Consecrated virgin is somebody who remains in the world. They don't make religious vows. They're not in a religious community, but they go to the bishop and they say, I want to be a consecrated virgin, which means I'm saying no to the possibility of marriage in my future so that I can say yes to our Lord with all my heart. Okay, so each of these three things is a state of permanence. Okay, it's a promise we make to a state of permanence, either in marriage or in religious life or in priesthood or in consecrated virginity. So a vocation is a calling from God to a state of life in which God can then work on us so that we can grow in holiness within that state in life. So uh, my professor, Father Mahoney, in the seminary, he talked about it in terms of like a block of wood that you want to shape. So in order to shape that block of wood, it has to be placed within a vice. 
right? So that it will be stable enough to shape it. So responding to a vocation is placing yourself within that vice. Okay, a mechanical vice, not a moral vice. Right? <laughs> placing yourself within that vice so that then God can shape you. And so in that sense of the vocation is a state of permanence. So when we talk about single life as a vocation, it's a vocation insofar as it's a state of permanence, otherwise it's a state of waiting. Or a state of discernment. Because if somebody is living a single life, but they really want to get married, and they're waiting to get married, then... They're not living single life as a vocation. They're just kind of waiting around to find Mr. Right. Now, somebody might be in that state and then eventually kind of say, okay, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to stay in this state and let God form me. And that's what they do. Now, in Scripture, you have widows and St. Paul talks about widows, and he says, like, widows might stay as they are, widows, and serve the church. And widows kind of lived, like, consecrated life. Their husband had died, they lived consecrated life, where they served the church for their whole life. We have people that do that. We have divorced people who do that. Like, divorced people who, they're not going to get married again, and they want to live out their vocation, and their vocation to love with regard to our Lord, and kind of focus on their identity as daughter, and serve the church, and let that vocation of love bear fruitfulness in the church. And it's usually not a state of permanence. They don't think of it as entering into a state of permanence, but subjectively, like they do say, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I entrust my life to our Lord. This is where I am. I'm not going to live in a state of constantly questioning, waiting, looking for the next person, and trying to do the next thing, but I'm just going to let my Lord, the Lord form me where I am. Okay, so in that sense, like people who find themselves in the single life, sometimes they find themselves in the single life and it's not really what they wanted and then they're in that position, the life I wanted, the life I have. I'm going to surrender the life I wanted, invite Lord, Lord in the life I have and let him transform that as my state of life. You know, so I think that's a better way of talking about it because when we say single life as a vocation it has to be for the kingdom it has to be for the kingdom and that's the main distinction in John Paul II is it's a vocation for the kingdom it's not a vocation of convenience so even when we talk about why don't priests get married our answer should not be because if they had a family they wouldn't have time to do all the work of the church it's a utilitarian reason you know, we're celibate for the sake of the kingdom because by entrusting my life to our Lord completely, I can be configured to him in a more profound way so that I can do his work in the world. But if it's just about making things more convenient, then I'm just a bachelor. Yes. What's communion and liberation? Because I wrote CL on the board. Oh, oh. I was right. Consecrated life, not communion liberation. I I like communion liberation. I'm not. It's good. 
Do you come on Wednesdays? I've never seen you. I, I'm from Oh, okay. We have like four people. I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any other questions? Dun, dun, dun. Everybody's like, we're good to go early. Okay. So I want to like throw out a couple more resources to you. So I showed you where the stuff is on YouTube. I'm going to send you the audio files from today. Um, I also have some other things like this is a website that, because we have talked a little bit about pornography, so integritystored.com is a site that is there to help families who have been affected by pornography. Okay, so... If you're in your school and you discover like kids are looking at pornography, which some of you have, one of the resources you can send parents to is integritystored.com. It's a Catholic website, and on this website, there are sections for individuals, spouses, parents, and clergy. <clears throat> right. So the reason we have the... Sorry, I thought it was up. So we have it set up. So it also can be a site for parents to learn how to protect my family. How do I talk to my kids about these issues? Um, what do I do if I just found out that my son has a problem? Those kind of questions. And then the clergy section has information on like how do I preach on this without scandalizing kids? How do I set up some kind of apostolate in my own parish? Things like that. So give me a second to set this to project. I'll show you it. Oh my gosh, my PC needs to restart. It's the evil one. Okay. All right, so integritystored.com. You can go there. It's a site that it's myself, Matt Frad, who's a Catholic apologist, like famous... He's Australian, so people like listening to him. Um, <laughs> Peter Kloponis, who's a psychotherapist from Philadelphia. Ryan Foley, who's a Catholic kind of business guy that works for, he's the vice president of Covenant Eyes. All right, so we kind of have been collaborating for about two years. We just sold the site for a dollar to Stewardship Mission of Faith, which is an umbrella organization that sort of pushes out apostolates. Um, so now we're being funded by Stewardship Mission of Faith. And so we'll be continuing to update the site with various materials. All right, so you can go there and check it out. There's a three-minute video of me talking about how do I pray in the midst of temptation and kind of walks through some of the distortions. And Jesus, you're invited into my imagination right now. Um, so that's a good resource. Some people have asked me about the kind of parent retreats that we've been doing in a couple of parishes. So... What those are, are at St. John's, they have a faith and family section of their school family association. And the mission of the faith and family committee is to reach out to families and try to find access points to reach out to families. So what we did two years ago was they had a confirmation retreat for the kids and so the kids went to the confirmation retreat, and Jeff Shinstock and some college kids did the confirmation retreat. The parents and the sponsors came to me, and I did the parent retreat. 
And so three hours, three hours. That's basically what the format was. Um, and so the content of that retreat is basically an hour of kerygma and an hour of marriage and the sacrament that your child is receiving. So marriage in the Eucharist or marriage in confirmation. And then an hour of parenting with a special emphasis on education for love. So it's essentially a kind of a win event to inspire parents because my main message in that is always like referring back to the child's baptism. You promise to protect the light of Christ in the hearts of your child. That means you build it up from within the family. You protect it from the dangers of the culture outside the family. And then your own personal conversion I give a real hard emphasis on telling your conversion story to your child, especially in preparation for confirmation. Like, answer that question, why am I Catholic? You know, and parents need to answer that question, why am I Catholic? And that should be part of, like, the child getting ready to receive confirmation. Um, and so it's kind of a, it follows the child-spouse-parent model, right? Craig, my, you're a child of God, marriage and the sacrament, being a parent, and education for love. And so this year we did it both for First Communion and Confirmation. And then Father Steck came for the Confirmation to be a sponsor, and he had me go out and do it in Syracuse. And then Father Buman is my friend, so he's had me up to Bellwood to do all kinds of stuff, you know, along the same area. Um, so that is something that I can either come to your school and do when you have your stuff, or I can help you to do it. I can send you the resources. It's basically just a condensed version of this last week. All right, it's a condensed version of this last week, sister. I was wondering, too, Father, with that, if you'd even consider, um, just because of the way you've developed it and, and there's a receptivity to your presentation, of um, even videotaping, you yeah. know, that then could be used in different parishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would be open to that. It's always better live. Yeah. But but if I do do that, then I'd probably want a little committee of people who have seen me present a few times to kind of talk about the real strengths and like what we want to do and script it and make it really professional and then send it out to do. So it's not just like, you know, Father Heeslip and his iPod filming me. <laughs> <laughs> but I would if I if I am open to doing that, and if if you all think that's a good idea, then um, I'm really open to to talking about that more because yeah, I think it's important. I've kind of like made my life in the family life office about responding to needs as they present themselves. So so I have that all in my head to do, but I've just been waiting for somebody to ask me for it. So there you go, sister. What does Jeff Shinstock do with the students? Does he have a uh, he does a great job. I don't know. I, he does, like, uh, it's kind of, I think they did a few talks and activities and things like that. It's the standard confirmation retreat that the retreat team used to do from Pius, I think, is kind of how it's built up. And he always come, he could always be with you, or do we have to set that up? We'd have to set that up and figure that out. <clears throat> and it could either be Jeff or it could be your own school. Like, at St. John's, they don't want the office to come to it. The teachers wanted to do it themselves. There was a little lack of continuity in figuring that out this year. Um, but that is like the job of the youth office and parents is the job of the family life office. And we want to be more collaborative in doing that moving forward. There are probably some good focused missionaries, college students who would also be able to do that. 
some parishes who have youth directors, they would be able to do that, and they should be able to do that. Um, so ideally, the kid presentation is sort of like that idea of who's Jesus, like kind of, especially for confirmation, trying to steer them towards, like this is about giving your life to our Lord in his church, you know, and what does that mean, and asking Jesus into your life in a real and permanent way, um, something more tangible, I guess. Now I can't connect, so I'm not supposed to show you websites. Um, so that's what he does. So that's how those retreats work. I mean, it's essentially the content from this week in a condensed way, and it becomes a really good win event to invite those parents to something else. You know, Ideally, like when I had all that stuff on the board, I come to their confirmation retreat, talk about the importance of conversion in your own life. All these parents are about crying because I just told my story about when my dog died. And then they're like ready to make a decision, and we say like Alpha starts next month, and we try to like plug them into that to go, right? But that implies that you have all of that set up and you have the infrastructure, right? So we're here to consult with pastors also about setting up that infrastructure. So some of the um, also there's also some other resources that I always plug, and some of you know about them, some of you don't. So the um, sex education that the parents should be doing, right? Like, you're not going to teach this to your kindergartner, right? Parents teach children theology of the body by loving them. And this parent is like, Father, can you, like, teach theology of the body to my first grader? I'm like, you just love them. They have an experience of you being trustworthy. They learn that you're trustworthy. They learn to entrust their life to you. And then, like, you transition them into this relationship with God you talk to them about everything along the way. All right, but we do need to do adequate education for love, which includes inoculating our kids against the culture that's out there. Um, so for parents, I do have these books that I recommend, and these are also for, like, I just found out my second graders are all on kick, and they're all on Snapchat, and somebody's sending around a bad thing. What do I do? These are some things you can send to the parents to order to help them. They can always call me, but there's this book called Good Pictures, Bad Pictures, which I still think is like gold. This book is gold. Parents read it to their kid, and it teaches them what to do if they see something bad on the Internet. It teaches the child to come to the parent and tell them and report if they see anything bad. And... It talks them through my thinking brain and my feeling brain. So you could even, like, if you did this with your second graders in class, I think Cathedral's thinking about doing it with their second graders in class, right? Because you also want them to report at school if their kid's showing them something bad on an iPod on the playground. But then you can start using the lingo with the kids who don't want to, like, they don't want to get back engaged in their lesson plans. You're like, use your thinking brain, not your feeling brain. <laughs> you know, you can use that lingo with them. Although a lot of parents who have read this to their kids, they use thinking brain, feeling brain all the time. You know, like, I want ice cream now and things like that. It's like, use your thinking brain. What do we need to do first? Okay. And they do it. So this book is really valuable. And then these are some books by Navigator Press, which I think are really good. They're just helps for parents to read these things to their kids. Right, so mom calls the principal and says, I just found out my son's watching these horrible videos. How do I do? And so the book, The Story of Me, is a book that you read to your child, and it identifies body parts and 
talks about how you're a boy like your dad, right? So when we talk about accepting our body and understanding our body, this is a way for a parent to walk through with their child exactly like the significance of their body. Okay, and that's as far as it goes. All right, you might read the first couple of pages when they're three, pull it out when they're four, when they're five, whatever it is. Some parents do a really great job of being direct and having talks. Some people, some parents don't. Sometimes it aggravates their own shame. One of the counselors from Catholic Social Services said that their son was nine and she wasn't sure he was quite ready to hear a lot of the information. But after she did go through it with him, she said his self-confidence is higher. He's more confident to come to us. He asks questions. He just seems more secure in himself. Because he has answers to the questions that he has. The book two from the same series is called Before I Was Born. And this book talks about how a baby's made, all of that. So this is like what it is to be a boy and a girl. This is why God made you a boy and a girl. Okay, the ages on this, this book is ages five to eight is what the authors put. I usually say about fourth grade is the time that I would have, that I would read this. If you haven't done it by fourth grade, I would do it by fourth grade. Remember that exposure to over-sexualized material on the internet is like seven or eight years old. So you're not going to scandalize them by teaching them what God's real intention is when they're that young. And the, it's like if the parents win the race, then that's a huge victory. And the race is the first person to talk to my kids about human sexuality. So, and if the first information a child learns is God made men and women so that he can make babies, then same-sex marriage just doesn't make sense. But if they don't know it's about making babies, then, like, well, why isn't that okay? You know, the only way to really make a complete logical argument is that we do proper education. So this book, Before I Was Born, is also really good. When I come around and I do parent talks, I bring all these with me. I sell them out of the back of my car, too. Okay, so this book is the book that I recommend giving out at Confirmation, which is called The Joyful Mysteries of Life. It is Catholic. It's written by a French couple who was responding to the document the truth and meaning of human sexuality and so it uses the mysteries of the rosary to frame education for love okay so it'll talk about the annunciation and it does the lesson on how god prepares the womb to receive the egg okay so it does it all framed that way right which i mean it becomes kind of funny when you're doing the question and answer at the end (laughs) Because you jump from, how does he come out of his mother, to, what is the third joyful mystery of the rosary? Okay. (laughs) So, I mean, it might break up things, but that's the way the book's framed, all right? Um, But this is the only Catholic resource that I have found that is set up for a parent to read to their child that gives them the vocabulary and the language to say what needs to be said. There are a lot of other good books for parents, but they tend to speak in the world of ideas and suggestions, and they're not concrete enough. And what parents have really shown a lot of appreciation for is read this book to your child, say these words. The conversation will come afterwards, but they need something to help them to say the words 
because nobody ever said those words to them when they were a kid. But we don't live in a culture anymore where parents can get away with not doing education for love or where we as a diocese can get away with not doing education for love because the whole culture is teaching them to counter love. And so the vocabulary from theology of the body, like relational language, talking about conversion, all of that helps us to have a vocabulary to talk about it. I hope that I've given you some vocabulary to talk about love and relationships and to know that you can explain all these things without talking about sex directly. Um, my computer's dead. And, uh, and that's it. All right, and I hope that this will bear some fruit for your own spiritual life. Um, yeah, I was thinking about doing Lexio Divina, but we're not going to have time. So there is one, when we talk about experiencing Christ in prayer, um, one of the things Sacred Heart's going to do this year is they are going to spend like some specific time in religion every week praying with Scripture at all grade levels in order to teach kids to like read this passage, what strikes you about this passage, write that down, what words stuck out to you. Then we're going to read it and paint a picture in your head. And then we're going to read it and you put yourself in the picture and use your imagination to see how Jesus interacts with you and to start to teach kids to do Lexio Divina from a young age. Because that's where we have those kind of experiences of God in our prayer. And we should all be doing that too. And you could do that with your other teachers. Like you could have a little Lexio Divina group at your school. It's like three people. You read the gospel, and then you go around the circle. This is what stuck out to me. This is what stuck out to me. Okay, then you read it again. This is what I saw. This is what I saw. This is what I saw. You read it again. Like, this is kind of how Jesus is acting in my life right now. Um, a couple of my spiritual directees over the last year, one of them came from one circumstance where they're kind of in a 12-step support group. One of them is just a really super engaged Catholic woman. Um, one of them just kind of needed to come to deal with some grief, who's also a pretty fairly engaged Catholic woman, and they're all in this Lexio group together. They just sort of, and it's funny because it's the, like, 12-step one that started it. And she was like, we just should do our homework together because I always just focus people on praying with Scripture. And so now they get together and they pray Lexio together and they really share what's going on in their spiritual life with each other and it's building this community with them and they're all learning from each other and they're learning to be vulnerable and they're learning to have real relationships which has been amazing to see that happen because then they just start like spreading it around and uh and it's actually having the effect of um, somebody that's in that Lexio group goes to her other Bible study at church and she starts like really sharing what's going on in her life and it's helping the rest of that other Bible study become more vulnerable and kind of more real about their relationship with our Lord. And so it's really been amazing to see how that happens. And, um, and I would encourage you, especially you who are teachers, to you know, think about that. You know, if you don't have a spiritual director, find someone to talk to about your prayer life. You know, everybody who works for the church really should have a spiritual director because you need to have somebody to go to and talk about your priest boss who's kind of a jerk or whatever it might be. That's what I tell my people. I'm like, you need a spiritual director because like, you're going to need to go talk to somebody about me. Um, and you need somebody who can, you know, you can talk to as a priest, as a father, because I'm your boss. And, um, 
and it helps you to continue to foster your own conversion, your own growth, so that you can pass on to your students what you receive from our Lord. Okay? All right. I'm really not trying to jam out till 1230. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to close with this prayer for inner healing. And I have copies of these that I'll give to all of you. While they're passing those out, I'll just say this prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, you came to heal our wounded and troubled hearts. I beg you to heal the torments that cause anxiety in my heart. I beg you in a particular way to heal all who are the cause of sin. I beg you to come into my life and heal me of the psychological harms that struck me in my early years and from the injuries that they caused throughout my life. Lord Jesus, you know my burdens. I lay them all on your good shepherd's heart. I beseech you by the merits of the great open wound in your heart to heal the small wounds that are in mine. Heal the pain of my memory so that nothing that has happened to me will cause me to remain in pain and anguish filled with anxiety. Heal, O Lord, all those wounds that have been the cause of all the evil that is rooted in my life. I want to forgive all those who have offended me. Look to those inner sores that make me unable to forgive. You who came to forgive the afflicted of heart, please heal my own heart. Heal, my Lord Jesus, those intimate wounds that cause me physical illness. I offer you my heart, accept it, Lord, purify it, and give me the sentiments of your divine heart. Help me to be meek and humble. Heal me, O Lord, from the pain caused by the death of my loved ones, which is oppressing me. Grant me to regain peace and joy in the knowledge that you are the resurrection and the life. Make me an authentic witness to your resurrection, your victory over sin and death, your living presence among us. Amen. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for a great week.